Would everyone uh, please turn this morning to Matthew chapter 6? Actually, it's going to be six. Matthew six. <clears throat> I have great news for you today out of Matthew six, and um, I have bad news for you on the headlines and the, the the news report for what's coming. And I'm not predicting prophetically about how bad things are going to get because it's the new year. I'm just reading First uh, Timothy 4. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron, men will for, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and by prayer. The Spirit, Paul says, explicitly says there's coming this, this apostasy problem. Paul also talks about this in 2 Timothy. This, realize this, that in chapter 3, the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, I want to read this closely. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Giannis and Yambrus opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. But they'll not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as Giannis and Yambrus also was. He also says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They'll turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the last thing Paul says. It's the penultimate chapter in Paul's writing. Uh, sorry, the penultimate paragraph, the, uh, next to the last paragraph of Paul's writing there in uh, 2 Timothy 4. Paul saw on the horizon a warning for Timothy that there were hard times ahead. And we all are looking at what, what, what's the hard time he's talking about. When is it coming? And, um, and I don't know. But here's the thought experiment I like to do with that instruction. What if it comes now? What if it's in my day? What if I have to deal with something like he's describing where the whole civilization is off the hook? It just off the, falls off the cliff. What if it's so bad that freedom means 
the majority run over the minority? What if freedom becomes tyranny and we lose the ability we have to speak freely the things of God? What if that happened to us? What if, what if it really got bad? Well, we would, um, we would be sober and we'd be serious and we'd do the work that God allows us to do anyway. So since it isn't that way yet, let's get about it. Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and the chapter looks this way. Matthew 6, we looked at it in some detail last week. I challenge everyone to read the Gospel of Matthew and to wrestle with it. It's a wrestling match. To read it and try to understand how it works, how it applies. I challenge you to read it and ask the question, um, if Matthew's writing to Christians in the church age somewhere after 50 A.D., 45 as the earliest possible date of Matthew, more likely 50s and 60s. If Matthew writes within the first or second generation of, of the Holy Spirit living in the believers in Christ, if that's what's happening in Matthew, but Jesus is talking in national Israel. Jesus is talking to the Jews that are disciples of his in his day. But Matthew's writing to Christians about what Jesus said. If that's the case, then how do these things apply? I think that what you have is a convergence of principles, much like what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians chapter 5, when he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and the things that love does, joy, peace, patience, all the 1 Corinthians 13 things love does, is the fruit of the Spirit. And he says that against these things there's no law. And then in another couple of paragraphs he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's a convergence, there's a, con- there's a concept of law that we are under, but it's the law of Christ, and it's to walk worthy of our calling, to walk by the Spirit. It's the law of the life of the Spirit. And so what I'm trying to say is, the question we ask is, how do these things apply to me? Jesus is talking to people under the Mosaic Covenant, and Matthew's writing to people indwelled by the Holy Spirit, a Jewish Christian readership, but indwelled by the Holy Spirit. How do these things obtain? How, do, how, do, how does this work? And I know a lot of people I love will say that, well, you can't apply Matthew to your Christian life because Jesus is talking to Israel. But I think the Apostle Paul is a Christian. I don't think Jesus is Pauline. I think Paul is Christian. He's of Christ. So this is a really important convergence in my view. The convergence is the concept of discipleship. Judas was listed as a disciple. There are disciples surrounding Jesus who abandoned him in John chapter 6 because of his harsh language. They can't deal with his imagery of eating and drinking his flesh and blood. They can't deal with it, so they walk away, but they're called his disciples. Judas is called a disciple. Judas is not a believer. Judas is the son of hell, the Bible says, son of perdition. He belongs to that and goes to his own place. Judas didn't get, they didn't believe in Christ as a savior. So not every disciple is a believer. And maybe you're a believer and maybe you're not really a disciple. Maybe you haven't really counted the cost as Jesus teaches throughout Matthew. He's not talking about counting the cost of discipleship for the age of Israel. He's talking about being his student, the Christ, the only Christ, the only one, the only celebrity, being his student forever and ever and ever. And the coming kingdom to which we are, 
waiting, anticipating. Jesus was offering it to these people. He was physically present as the king and saying, here it is. Repent for the kingdom's in your grasp. And they rejected it. And that's the narrative function of Matthew to show you that the nation rejected the kingdom. We are not in, listen to me, the kingdom in the sense that Jesus is on earth ruling in this coming kingdom. It's still future. You have to have the king in his dominion ruling as described, or we don't have the kingdom as promised. And what you have with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father ruling until all his enemies have been put under his feet, that is not the promised kingdom that God said he would give to Abraham and his kids. It's not David's son sitting on David's throne in in Jerusalem, but that is coming. So there's a convergence I'm trying to show you that we do hold distinct what the Bible presents as distinct. Listen, the people that Jesus is speaking to in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 do not yet have the Holy Spirit living in them, and they are not baptized into Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. They aren't. Nobody was. And that is explicitly stated in John chapter 7. The Word of God says that the Holy Spirit wasn't yet given because Christ wasn't yet glorified. And that's a distinction that the Bible makes. In fact, to me, that's the most important distinction, that you and I have the Spirit of God living in our hearts, as Paul says, to abide forever. That's what defines the church. You can look it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And I know there are theologians, and there always have been, but let's get back to the Bible. We become part of the body of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's given on the day of Pentecost, and we believe 33 A.D., some, some say 30 A.D., but however the calendar works, when, on the day of Pentecost, the year Jesus was crucified, the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers and began this work of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, of building the body of Christ. So what am I saying? I'm saying that you can apply what Matthew says about disciples of our Lord to your own spiritual life if you are a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, disciple does not mean follower. We get confused about this. Unless you know that a follower is someone studying what the person's doing and saying and copying them. Follow the leader in terms of being a student, yes. And then you do what they say and copy them. But uh, just following him around, that's not what it means to be a student. It's a follower because Jesus walks around when he teaches, so if you want to hear the lecture, you've got to walk around with him. So you're following him to hear what he says. I'm just making the explicit distinction between going through motions and getting God's revelation in your heart and the power of the Holy Spirit to quicken that word in you that is alive and powerful. In Matthew 6, the universal principle is that God is a, is a rewarder of things that please him. When he sees work that pleases him, he rewards Jesus is talking to national Israel, his disciples that are Israel. Uh, Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians that are the church. But before and after Jesus came, you have his disciples. And the same audience that Jesus is talking to in the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28 is the audience that Matthew's writing to 30 years later. What am I saying? That the principles in Matthew 6 are ours for stronger reason because we're in Christ, because we're the body of Christ, and we have a role even regarding the coming kingdom. I don't believe we're in the kingdom. I believe we belong to it. 
I don't think the kingdom is in effect right now. I think it's in abeyance, but I think we're part of God establishing it. And I don't believe that we're going to bring it. I think he's going to let us participate when he brings it. And I'll show you that today. In Matthew 6, though, it's extremely practical. Practicing your righteousness so that people see it cancels the reward God would give you if you're practicing your righteousness so that people saw God. You're canceling by doing what you do. You're canceling God's reward of that work, giving, praying, and fasting, if you're doing it so that people take note to glorify you. If you're doing it so that people can see your Father who's in heaven and glorify Him, that's what finds favor because that's the mission. Our mission isn't to reveal ourselves, broadcast yourself. No, our mission is not to get likes and clicks. Our mission is to bring honor and glory to Him. Jesus was sent to reveal the Father. He parlayed that mission in God's eternal plan to us, his disciples, and we are through Christ revealing the Father. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. So you share the gospel, the person believes in Christ, and then can come to the Father. It's the, it's the, it's the ultimate mission. It's an awesome calling. It's the most loving thing you could do, and it's such a much better, better project than any social structures or any social organizer, any of the things that people do after the flesh to try to solve the various problems. The problems are in the hearts of people. The problems are in us. We are the problem. We're not gonna solve the problem by fixing what the forefathers failed at. And we're gonna hear a lot about that this year. You won't hear a lot about that from this pulpit this year, but you're gonna hear a lot about that this year, about how the forefathers uh, failed and the structures are bad and the good people are being oppressed by an evil system. And I'm sorry. This system is a reflection of the people who are corrupt. So the system's corrupt. If you do what you do in verses 1 through 18, if you do the righteous acts of worship toward God for the purpose of people honoring and praising you, then what would have drawn blessing from God and reward is going to be Canceled. You have your reward in full. Speaking of treasure and reward, verses 19 through 34 teach the way to think about wealth, about material, about support, about our needs. It's magnificent what Jesus does for all of our concerns after the flesh. Now, the convergence I'm talking about. The convergence I'm talking about is the principles that Jesus is teaching here are very important for you and I, for you, and no, that's what a preposition, for you and me. Those are very important uh, principles because we're still in this fleshly life. We're still needing to make a living. We still have to deal with decisions regarding material wealth. And we are still anticipating reward from our Father who rewards in secret. There's a, there are many convergent factors between us and national Israel, the church and national Israel, as you think about these concepts. And we said in this passage, it's really challenging to read a little bit of the language, the imagery, but it's very helpful once you figure it out. In verses 22 and 23, we said that the concept is, well, verse 19, well, let's just go through it. Let's read it. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, thesarizo, thesaros. 
Don't treasure up treasure for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is my translation, and it's real close to what the New American Standard does with the verb tenses and so forth. Don't do this, but do this. Don't make money on earth instead of making money in heaven is the idea. Remember that the cabbage, that folding money on New Year's Day? You want to get rich, but you don't want to be wealthy after the flesh. That's not your goal. It isn't wrong to be materially wealthy after the flesh either, but it's not your goal. Those who want to get rich, Paul says, pierce themselves through with many griefs. I've seen it. It's not a, it's not a legitimate pursuit, but it's the only pursuit. I know, but it's not legitimate. We're a bunch of illegitimate pursuers with emphasis on sewer. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, don't resist this. He's not saying become a believer. He's saying do the works of righteousness that God rewards eternally. That's a different topic. It's a second step after you become a believer. He's talking to you, disciples. He's talking to you, believers. Store up treasures in heaven. Now, don't get arrogant and self-righteous and contradict Jesus or the Apostle Matthew writing what Jesus wrote and say, well, I don't need any special extras. I'll just go to heaven. I'm just happy to be there. I'm pretty holy. I, I don't want extra. I don't need anything more, Lord. I'll just, I'll just be glad to be a, a janitor in heaven. Fine. But the Bible says get rich. It says go for it. And it's not material wealth. That's the lie that's being popularized on TV for the last 30 years, is that if you're a real believer, if you're really getting it right, then God's really going to pour and bless you and make you wealthy. Well, what about all the rich people that are unbelievers? What about all the rich people that are fighting God and even on TV saying, get rich for God, right? This is not about physical material wealth. There is a word in the scriptures about your physical material wealth, but this isn't it. This is about eternal wealth, and you don't want to focus on here and now. The point is, look at what's coming. Look to the future. This is a great time to be thinking about these things. It's the end of the year. We're looking at a fresh calendar. You know, you're still going to be you, right? And all that you did to yourself over the last two weeks is still with you. And, and now you're going to have to go deal with you. But it's fresh. I mean, it's a fresh year. I got a new calendar. I haven't ruined my year yet. But the point is, anytime we get a chance to look at what's coming at the future. We're adopting a Christian a biblical mentality, a mental attitude. There is much in the scriptures about the eschatology, about what the future holds. And he who knows best is telling you, there is a bank account with your name on it. You need to be making deposits. You need to be making deposits. Now, this is where I come down off the pulpit. I'm gonna get real serious with y'all. And we're gonna talk about everybody give money to the church. We're trying to build a building here right? And that's what we're going to talk about. It is not at all what we're going to talk about. It's to contradict the message. Remember, he was just talking about praying and giving alms to the poor and fasting. Your spiritual disciplines, your spiritual duties that you do in your relationship responsive to God according to his word, you're loving him back with your choices. Store up treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the most important verse to figure out motivation. There's all kinds of self-help stuff out there, all kinds of books you can get about how to live and how to, how to think about things. But this is the point Jesus is making that he knows, he made us. 
This is good anthropology, in other words. Where your treasure is, that's where your attention's going to be. What do you treasure? So we have to repent, some of, some of us, a lot of us, a lot of the time. If I'm treasuring things that are not eternally valuable, and I'm not treasuring that which is eternally valuable, then I've got to repent. I've got to change my thinking. I need to switch off of the way of the world and the things in the world and start treasuring the things of God. Because where my treasure is, there is my heart. That is not something I'm going to be able to break. What are you treasuring is the challenge of Matthew 6.21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is telling us that the Christian life is spiritual in nature. You cannot live it apart from God's word, and you can't live it apart from the work of the Spirit in you. It's got to be real, though not seen. And that, you can't see these treasures. And he's about to talk about your eyes. The point is, what are you thinking on? What is your focus? Will you make that adjustment if you never have? Will you make that adjustment and say, God, have your way. I want the treasure you have. I'm trusting in you. I'll just make Jesus my treasure. He's the most wonderful thing that's ever been given to me. I'll fix my attention on him. Now, that's a scary thing to do. I might lose something. Well, what, what could you possibly lose if you fix your attention and drive your, your interests and all your decisions based on who he is? What do you stand to lose? Well, I might not get the promotion or I might lose money or I might lose stuff or status or all the things we get worried about losing. Hey, Jesus is the heir of everything. You're a fellow heir with Christ. You can't lose. But that's faith. You have to believe this. You have to trust in him. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's always a test of faith, as we said. And then this is the hard part. The light of the body, the luknos, luknos of the body is the eye. The light of the body is the eye. I want everybody to close their eyes real quick and turn off the lights. Think about what we're saying. The, the light of the body is the eye. So the picture is of the human person with the eyes being the receptacle, the, reci the recipient of light. The recipient of light. Okay? So how do your eyes work? Do they generate light? No, they receive light. But the light they receive then illuminates the person. That's what he's saying. Your whole person is illuminated by what your eyes are looking at. What does that have to do with verse 21? It's very clear for verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, is where your attention is going. So if you're looking at the light, then you have light. If you're looking at Christ, then you have light in you. If you're looking at something less or something dark, then the receptacle of light doesn't get any light. And so there's no light. That's what he's saying. That's the topic. If therefore your eye is sincere, sincerely functional, your whole body will be illuminated. But if your eye is bad, evil, your whole body will be dark. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two curioi. No one can serve two lords or masters. It's fine to say that Lord, kurios, means, means master. It does. means the person in authority calling the shots. No one can serve two lords. For he will either hate the one and the other he will love, or he will be devoted to the one and the other he will despise. He cannot serve God and wealth. And so far we're caught up. This is a review. What is he saying? He's saying that you cannot make earthly treasure, wealth, money, whatever, status, the thing that you desire after the flesh. What about my goals and my dreams? Whatever it is, if it's not the Lord Jesus, if it's not the things of the Lord Jesus, if it's not the work of the Lord Jesus, 
It's less than you should be valuing and treasuring. And there's a should here. There's a moral, ethical Christian responsibility for setting our scale of values. I said there's a moral or ethical Christian responsibility for setting our scale of values on things that are eternally valuable. God doesn't want you to throw your money, your life, your resources, your time away. He wants you to make it count. He wants your life to count. And he's not alone, is he? God's not the only one that wants your life to count. I certainly want my life to count. Don't you want yours to count? Don't you want to matter that you existed, that you're here? Mom does. Your mother and father want your life to count. Sometimes our moms and dads don't know what that would mean because if they haven't processed this, if they haven't understood this, well, but maybe you can understand this. Maybe God will grant you the perspective that he's suggesting, that you take the spiritual truths and you trust God about them, and then you build your life on that rock. Now, to the world, is foolishness. You're building your life on, in, in, in the clouds. But to the God who's there, who makes everything the way it is, this is eternal life that you're enjoying now. See, you're supposed to be looking up and out to what's coming. We're not looking down at the shame. We're looking at the glory that's been set before us, the joy that's set before us. We're like Jesus, and we're looking for what's coming. Now, what, believers, is coming? Is everyone clear on what is coming down the pike, historically, prophetically, according to the Word of God? Is everyone uh, up to date on, do you get your, your eschatology uh, uh, instruction uh, lately. I haven't talked a lot about the, um, about the sequence of future events, but I think it's okay to do that for now, for a moment. What's coming for us in history at some point in the near future? We don't know when. It's a lot sooner now than it was 2,000 years ago. There is coming an invasion of Turkey, Russia, uh, uh, um, <sighs> The, um, those people. Yeah, the Iranians. I'm trying to th- think of what they were before. The, the Farsi, the, yeah, the Persians. They're, they're going to build this alliance that will not include the Saudis, apparently. And, and they're going to attack Israel in mass, in some massive attack that God is supernaturally going to put down according to Ezekiel 30s. That's going to happen. Prophetic scholars struggle on sequencing prophecy, and this one's a very difficult one to sequence when related to the other things that are predicted that are future. But that's going to happen. It may happen while we're here. It may not happen while we're here. There is coming, apparently, the Apostle Paul thought in his day, it could have been any time, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds, and so will we ever be with the Lord. There's coming the catching up of the body of Christ, the first time it was ever assembled. (laughs) When I mention the rapture, be sure if you're my kid to stand up and walk out. That's perfect. (laughs) All right. There's coming a time when we are going to hear the Lord blow the trumpet or, or an angel blow the trumpet and say, end of exercise. The suffering's over, the fight, the growth, the serve the Lord under these conditions with the broken flesh and the broken world attacking the flesh and Satan pulling the strings on both, over. It's over for you. It may happen through a car accident. It may happen through natural causes uh, or a horrible disease or it might happen when Jesus 
It says this is, the, this is it. The body of Christ is complete and he calls us up. But that is in the imminent future. And we're supposed to live our lives with an any moment anticipation that this could be our last opportunity to suffer for our Savior. Not only to be saved, but to, be, to suffer for his sake. And that is imminent. Paul said we, Paul meant including himself, are, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. Now it's not called the rapture in Greek, it's called the harpazo. It's the Greek word for catching up. They translated the Greek Bible into Latin, everybody clear on that? And then later they put it in English. It's a great thing they've done, this Bible translation thing. Well, along the way, they put harpazo in from the Greek as rapto is the Latin, and that's where you get the word rapture. Just so you know, people say it's not in the Bible. It's, in, it's, in a, major, it's a major theme of an entire epistle in 1 Thessalonians. It's the end of every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And the big explicit portion of it is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Why do I tell you about that? Because we're worried about, it's the new year coming, what's going on with the election. We're worried about all the little things that are, you know, taxes are coming soon and all the things they're worried about. There are babies being born soon in this church family, very soon. Everybody looks over at mama and, uh, and she's not even here. And, and, and there's all these things that are, we're worried about after the flesh and we, God has us doing those things, but we have to put them in proper balance. The, the, the details of life are not the eternal rewards that God is, God is going to give us based on how we dealt with the details. And so we're supposed to be looking up and out. We're supposed to look at what's coming. The reason I bring up the rapture for believers is because I want you to understand um, the rapture is something that's not in our control. There's a lot of dispute about the sequencing or the timing of it. Some say it happens after the tribulation of God's wrath on the nations and Israel. Some say it's before. I, I'm a before. Uh, we're a pre-trib church. We think Jesus comes back for the church because Jacob's trouble is for Jacob, and we draw that biblical distinction. Um, some say, it's, no, it comes after, so Jesus comes down in the clouds, and then we go up to meet him, and then we come back down with him to set up the kingdom. Um, pre, pre-millennial, covenant premillennialism holds to that view. The early church view before Augustine was... Uh, was um, at least premillennial, they believed that the kingdom that was promised to Israel and would be a thousand years, stated six times in Revelation 20, would come um, after the tribulation. But anyway, however you sequence these things, what I, what I want to bring home is that y- you have a finite number of days, minutes, hours, opportunities to be about God's work under these conditions. You're in the you're in the the arena. You're on the field, you're, 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 take, you're, you're making these plays. The, the clock's running down. You don't have as much time as you think nobody does. And what's it for is the challenge. What's it for? It's for service. It's for him. It's to bring glory and honor to him. It's for the things above, for treasures in heaven. He's saying there's a bank account. You need to do some storing up. It's storing time. It's investment. That's what the time we're in is for. And so the near term, um, it's hard to imagine. I know for young people especially, it's hard for you to think of uh, at any moment we could be face-to-face with our Savior, end of exercise, and then it's the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that's the next thing, by the way, after the Lord catches us up, is he's going to judge us for our life's works. And I didn't get that from some theologian, except for the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, in that paragraph, and he says it in, um, 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This judgment seat of Christ, this Bema seat of Christ, has been jammed together by errant theologians like Augustine that say if it's judgment, it's all the same judgment. But if you read the Bible closely and actually study it in its original, what you find is that it sounds a lot like it reads in English and that there are dis- distinctions. The great white throne judgment at the end of the book of Revelation is a judgment for those not written in the Lamb's book of life. And you don't want to be in that judgment. What about us? What about being judged for the works that we've done? That's called the Bema, Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. It's in 2 Corinthians 5. And Jesus is said to judge us and give us recompense for the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. There is a judgment that involves the reception or the loss of eternal rewards. And again, you can read about the rewards more explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Why do I bring this up? Because that's the treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, his Jewish disciples, under the law, what Matthew is writing historically for the benefit of church age believers that are Jewish to Matthew's original audience who need to know that there is a treasury. There is a storing up. That is what we're doing right now. And it's spiritual. It's not visible. In fact, if other people see it and say, hey, you're doing great, storing up treasures in heaven, likely you've just lost reward. <laughs> because, because if you're doing it for people's applause, then you lose. Now, understand, it doesn't mean that if people recognize your service that you were doing it for that. that, that that's, you can't cancel someone's reward by complimenting them. I've heard that, like, well, don't clap for people performing a ministry in church because they, you know, if, they, if we recognize something and we give an applause, we're taking away their rewards. That's crazy. Now, you're not taking away rewards, but you can definitely forfeit them yourself. So, so what's coming for us? Well, there's coming this invasion. There's going to be um, a catching up of the church to meet the Lord in the clouds, and so will we ever be with the Lord. Where will we be after that with the Lord? Where will the Lord be? Wherever he is, we'll be with him. Where will we be after the, the catching up of the clouds? So will we ever be with the Lord? How long? Forever? Okay, that's, that's your new billet. I'm with the Lord wherever he is. That's, that's the deal. And um, what else is coming? Well, there's coming a time of horrible tribulation. Jesus said in Matthew 24, it is so bad, it's never been this bad before, and it'll never be this bad again. Now, Jesus was speaking after the events of Antiochus Epiphanes and, and described in Daniel and the horrible things that happened in the intertestamental period and the abomination of the temple, uh, desecration of the temple by the Seleucids. You, he's, he's not saying that, that it's going to be as bad as that. He's saying it's going to be worse than anything that's ever happened. And people said, well, that just happened in the first century. That's Titus's invasion. He destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple in 70 AD. And so that's fulfilled. It's already done. You know, we've already had the great tribulation. They're called preterists and that, that's Latin for, for, for past. It's already past the events of Revelation. And uh, it's a misreading of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And it's, an, again, it's an appeal to a tradition, which has to be evaluated because the tradition came from somewhere. Or it's an appeal to, um, to um, allegor- allegorical interpretation of prophecy. And what we need to do is read the text as it's written. The time of Jacob's trouble, let's, do, let's see if we can figure this out. Who is the time of Jacob's trouble for? It's for Jacob because it's his trouble. And it's the seven remaining years, the last seven 
years of the, of the, the calendar in Daniel 9. There's 69 weeks and then one more week or seven year period. So that's prophesied in Daniel. It's not the clearest language in Daniel chapter 9. But the way this thing apparently starts is that there becomes this one ruler that looks a lot like Antiochus and all the other great men of history, and he will make a covenant with the many for, um, a, for one week. That covenant is um, stated in Daniel 9, 27, 28. This apparently is a, a, a discrete marker that we'll be able to look at if we were here where this is the beginning of a clock. In fact, I'll, I'll turn there. I'll show you what I mean. Don't take my word for it. I'll, look, I'll read it from the Bible. Daniel 9. I mean, this is coming in the future. This is going to happen. It says, 70 weeks in verse 24 have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Who's it for? Your people and your holy city. Who are the people? Well, he's talking to Daniel. So who are Daniel's people? Oh, that's the church. No, that's national Israel. And your holy city. What holy city? That'd be Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So that, to me, sound to me, that sounds like that's a summation of everything until the some sort of of, of termination point. And what the termination point is, we'll find as you read the rest of the Bible, it's the entrance of the kingdom. It's when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, and as we read, all of Israel is saved in, in uh, Romans 11. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven and 62 is 69, and a week is seven, and these are weeks not of seven-day periods, but seven-year periods. Because the word isn't weak, it's 72 sevens in Greek. Seven weeks and uh, 62 weeks. Seven sevens and 62 sevens. And that's how it reads in, in, in Hebrew. It will be built again in the plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. I believe it was Harold Honer who calculated 62 weeks from the decree of, I think it was Cyrus, to go back to the land takes you right to the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So it's, it's, it's talking about the first advent of Christ here. And the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. When was the Messiah cut off and had nothing? What was the crucifixion of Christ in 70, uh, 30, sorry, 33 AD? Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. There's a prophecy of the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. And the people of the coming prince, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's 70 AD. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations, and determines, determined. Now he, the, the prince that is to come, is mentioned in verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's seven years. But in the middle of the week, that's the first three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that's decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, people have said, since Daniel has prophecies of Antiochus IV Epiphanes that happens a few hundred years later, they said, well, this is just talking about his desecration of the temple. But when Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24, and both in Matthew and Mark, it says, let the reader understand, 
He's after Antiochus saying this is coming. This is still a future event. So Antiochus is like a type of what's coming with the desecration of the third temple, what eventually would be the third temple. Now, the reason I read this to you is to show you it's not super clear language. It takes a lot of effort. And the word weeks doesn't help because now we're going to try to figure out calendars with the actual seven-day calendar week. And that's not what it means. It means seven, 77s. I believe that Daniel's 70th week is coming on the, the earth dwellers. And that's the language used throughout the prophets and in Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. That is a time of wrath, of God's wrath and judgment on the nations. It's, it's Psalm 2 stuff, and it's a horrible time of tribulation. The first seal in Revelation chapter 6, there's three septads of judgments. There's the seals, and then the bowls, and then the trumpets. And each seventh, uh, seventh seal, is, it introduces the, the seventh is the, the seven bowls. And the seventh bowl is the seven trumpets. So there's this cascading timeline of judgments through this seven-year period described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. This, this time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation or the period of, of tribulation that Jesus describes, this begins with the first judgment that God brings, that Jesus opens the first seal. And the first seal in Revelation 6 is a conqueror on a white horse with a bow in his hand goes forth to conquer. I think it's interesting that he brings a bow, and in Revelation 12, the Satan's um, attack on Israel is described as a flood. I think the bow imagery is significant because God hung his bow in the clouds after Genesis chapter 9. The Revelation 6 ruler that comes on, on the first seal is not Jesus. I saw a ministry the other day proposed. They're trying to do the, the, the Revelation 6 conquer going forth to conquer as Jesus, and they're building their whole conference on Jesus as this conqueror with a bow. That is the Antichrist. He is coming to conquer the nations. He's described as the one in Daniel chapter 9 that makes this firm covenant. He's the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians, and he is uh, fairly well uh, described in the scriptures. This Antichrist, this replacement Christ. Do you know that the nations that you're talking about today, we're talking about geopolitics and what's going on with Ukraine, Russia, and Israel, and all this. Do you know that these nations, it could be in the near future, are going to worship this one ruler like he's a god? No, they can't possibly do that. The Muslims will never stand for that. Well, maybe they, they have some significant features in their culture that would prevent that, but are they significantly more uh, sophisticated than the Germans? Did you ever see any of the propaganda stuff they did with Hitler? They were very close to worshiping Hitler. As a, and, and without all the tech that we have today to, to make it easy. No, the whole world is going to go to hell pretty soon. And I don't know when. And I'm not uh, 2,000 years sooner than it was when it was first stated in Revelation uh, 9, 6 through 19. But that's the, that's the destiny of planet Earth until Jesus comes back to set everything right. Did you know the word church, ecclesia, is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 6 through 19? It's mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches, and then there's silence. I wonder why that is. It's because the time of Jacob's trouble, God's wrath on the nations is not for his bride. It's not for the bride of Christ. It's for the nations. So where do we come into this? How, what's my picture? Pastor, you're saying that the tribulation is coming. It's not for us. And, and I've heard people say, well, you're just trying to get out of judgment. You're just trying to get out of suffering. But God said he was going to bring tribulation. We are having our tribulation. 
Our, our beginning was people being, being crucified, uh, be, burning, being burned alive for Nero's parties, the, the Colosseum. Christians are being persecuted all around the, around the world. We Americans are just in a bubble because we are a nation that were founded by Christians and we, we fought for that. But this is a bubble historically, the Christian persecution. We are going through our tribulation right now and it's pretty cush here in America, at least for now. I, by the way, how is, how is public opinion in America? There was a headline I saw this week that said uh, one in five people under, I think it was 20 or something, have a favorable opinion of Osama bin Laden. How is that possible? Well, of course. Osama sounds like Obama. It's like it rhymes. That sounds Arabic or something. And then there's, you know, the, the, the professors teaching us to, to, to be pro-Arab and hate Israel. And yeah. It's, that fits. That's where we're headed as a people. It's, it's easy to imagine. And those of you who don't understand why we're all kind of clicking and saying, why, what, how's that possible? You just have to understand there was a huge solidarity in our country uh, right around September 12th of 2001. And all we knew was Osama bin Laden's a bad guy. That's the only thing we knew about the whole thing, except that, that, that he's the bad guy and he did this to us. And now we don't have any memory of any collective consciousness of anything. All right, what are we saying here? We're saying that the judgment that is coming on the nations is not God's wrath on his church. There are people in Christendom that are not believers. They're not part of the bride of Christ, and they're going to have a rude awakening, and I suspect become believers pretty quickly when this all kicks off. But let's say, just go with me for a minute, those of you that are opposed to this idea and you think that we're supposed to go through the tribulation because we are... Uh, the bride of Christ receiving the wrath of God. I just want you to hear what our destiny is regarding the coming kingdom. There's nothing in the scriptures that says you and I are supposed to feed the poor so that the kingdom comes. It doesn't even say if you evangelize enough people, that'll make the kingdom come. That's, that's a misunderstanding of a statement in the scriptures, but you can't force God's timeline. But you and I are uh, marked out for a, 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 a date, that God has set up on a calendar he knows about, and we don't know when it is, when Jesus comes back to establish national Israel over all the nations, and he removes the curse of the ground set up in Genesis 3 because of the fall, because of man's fall. And he's going to use us somehow. We have a role in doing this. And I think it's kind of like when I'm with my kids, my little kids, and they want to help me build a fire. You know, what do I let them do? Like, I don't need any help building the fire, right? Um, but, okay, I, you guys get some of the little kindling wood and put that together. Go up and grab the stuff off the dryer that mom saved for us. We're going to put that under the little, little teepee we build. Okay, now get some more. And then they bring, you know, a little kid brings a bunch of leaves. I'm like, no, we're not doing that way. Go get me some little sticks. And, I mean, it, what takes me, you know? two or three hours takes them five or six hours. I'm just kidding. But, you know, I'm letting them participate. And then what do they really want to do once it's built? They want to be the one to light it. And it's really hard if you have six boys to have everybody light the fire at the same time. In fact, I, so far for me, it's, it's, it's impossible. But let's just say that we're all got this fire ready and then somebody gets to light it. Did I need that help? No, but I let them because they wanted to, because I wanted them to, because I wanted them to learn, right? I think that's what's going on in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. 
Paul says, after discussing our walk, this side of the cross, that we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to our sin nature. If you're living according to the sin nature, you must die. That's the flesh. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is spiritual life, enjoying your spiritual life. For all who are being led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. Now, in Romans 8, who were called the sons of God? Is it angels? It is not angels in Romans 8. He defines his terms. When he says, he's saying the sons of God are those who are, verse 14, led by the spirit of God. Now, keep that in mind. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, those that receive inheritance in the context. This is about inheritance. Ladies, you are the sons of God in the sense that you're joint heirs with Christ and have full rights as heirs. So never let someone try to say sons and daughters to you because that's a misuse of the the metaphor Paul is using of adoption. You've been adopted as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So God the Father is our dad, is what that language means in Romans um, chapter 8, verse 16. What, what does this have to do with the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ and the tribulation? Listen, because he doesn't talk about any of that. He talks about what comes next. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may, we may also be glorified with him. Now, on the language of adoption and being children, I know it's been popular to misread this because of English reading and American culture. The adoption he's talking about is not that we're not natural born into the family so that like we're Israel was the real children, but we're the adopted children. That's not what that means at all. We are naturally born again, supernaturally children of God's family begotten by the Spirit in the new birth. We are his children. The adoption that Paul is talking to the Romans and Greco-Roman culture is Roman adoption where the child born in the household is declared the heir upon his majority so that he gets the signet ring and he has the inheritance applied to his account. This is, you have to read the Bible in terms of the, the, the time which was written and the culture that, that received it. You can't superimpose American-style adoption on this. So understand, it's a double belonging to God. You're his children, technos. You are his kids, and you're his sons. Adopted sons declared his heirs in Romans chapter 8. If we're children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, the Son of God. If indeed we suffer with him, so we may be glorified with him. So the inheritance that is ours, is our union with Christ, and we inherit all that he inherits if we are his. And then verse 18 takes you past the invasion of the the alliance against Israel and God's supernatural destruction of that invasion. It takes you past um, the rapture of the church. It takes you past the judgment seat of Christ. It takes you past the tribulation. It takes you past the the, the whole discussion of Revelation chapter 6 through 18 and brings you right to Revelation 19. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now again, Christianity has lived up looking at what's coming just like Jesus did for the joy that was set before him. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Who in Romans 8 19 are the sons of God? The same as Romans 8, 14. Who are they? We, us. We are the sons of God in context. Got to watch the context, how that language is used. The 
Creation is awaiting our revelation. Did you catch that when you read Romans 8? I was just waiting for Romans 8.28 because I need all things to work together for good. Listen to it. The creation was subjected. Let's say verse, verse 19. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of you and me, of the sons of God. Oh, hey, guess we're here. When the Lord reveals us, creation is somehow relieved. That's not here and now. That's, that's what's coming. It's still waiting. Are we still seeing the problems of, of the natural evil, the natural disasters that we see? Do we have a problem with ticks here in Connecticut? For the creation was subjected to futility, that's Genesis 3, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to the corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Who are the children of God? Us. When God glorifies us here on planet earth, by the way, that's not the heavenly people, earthly people stuff, that's here on earth. When he glorifies us here on earth, somehow that action is going to free the earth from its curse, the thorns and thistles and, the, and all that. Far as the curse is found, this is joy to the world stuff. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're looking for a resurrection, all of us. So much theology here, but it's talking about what's coming. You and I are involved in God's project of freeing planet Earth from the corruption that started in Genesis 3. That's after the rapture. That's after the, after the judgment seat of Christ. And I think it's after the tribulation when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. Back to Matthew 6 as we close. The very practical realities of your life are you're storing up treasures in heaven. For this reason I'm saying to you, do not worry for your soul or your life, what you may eat, what you may drink, neither for your body, what you'll wear. Is, the soul much more, is not the soul much more than food and the body more than clothing? The answer is yes, of course. So now what? We, talk, we talked about this guy. Who among you worry, by worrying can add to his lifespan one hour? Nobody can. And concerning clothing, why are you worried? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not spin or toil, but I'm saying to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these lilies of the field. Solomon was the most wealthy man in the world and he was, uh, I think that's the wealthiest man in the world. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of poor on my grammar, but he was wealthy. And so he's rich and he could clothe himself as, as well as could be clothed and the lilies, the, the trash out there, just the, just the, just the stuff that's going to get burned up, the grass is much more beautiful because of God's care for it. But if the grass of the field being today and tomorrow into the fire being thrown, that's literally what it says in Greek. The, the grass is just here today, on top, being here today. And tomorrow into the fire being thrown, God thus clothes. Now, I just want to point out in the Greek, he starts off by putting the grass in front, and then he describes God having clothed it, the grass, with these lilies. Not much more you, ye of little faith. Literally, not much more you. Will he not much more clothe you? If he's got his grass out there with lilies, will he not do much better for you? That's the rationale that Jesus proposes, thinking of the creator of the grass and of your own frame. Therefore, do not worry. Let's all say it together. Therefore, do not worry. 
There's no other translation for this. Do not worry. Jesus consistently, the Bible consistently says anxiety is not ours to assume. It's not a load we're supposed to carry. Do not worry. But I worry. Right. That's a contradiction of what the word says. I can't help it. Maybe you can help it. Maybe he's telling you not to. Maybe you can make some choices. But if I didn't worry about whatever the thing I'm anxious about, then I'd have to have something else in my mind. I'd have to have somebody, something else grabbing my attention so that I wasn't worried about that thing. I'd have to have my heart be focused on something else so that I wasn't worried about the threat that I'm worried about. Yeah, that's what Revelation's for. That's why the word of God. Therefore, do not worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we throw around ourselves? I know it says put on, but parry, around, ballo, to throw. That word in Greek, which translates often to put on, means to throw around. And it's a, it's a, it's a weird, neat description word. If you're putting on a robe or a toga, you throw stuff around yourself. That's what it means. Anyway, I wanted to see that flavor of the Greek there. Peri For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. All right, this is an apologetics moment. The world around you knows we have to eat, we have to drink, we have to have shelter, we have to have clothing. Everybody knows it. Everyone knows it. Everyone has this as a high priority. We've got, to, we've got to get this life support stuff down. The logistics have to be taken care of before we can start talking about, um, about our arcade budget or going to play or going to, to sports events or whatever. Got to take care of the mortgage. You got to do first things first. And everybody knows this is how you have to live. But not everybody knows how God wants you to live. And Jesus, God the Son, is telling us how to live. All the nations, Israelites, know that you need these things. They all eagerly seek after these things, but there's more to the story than I have a stomach and there's work to do so I can fill it. There's God who also has taken the responsibility to provide for you. He knows that you need all these things. Did you know that God knows you need these things? God knows that you need stuff that you don't know you need. God knows that you need stuff that you don't want. He also knows that you need to not have stuff that you do want. And this gets to omniscience. God knows. Your heavenly father knows. He's better at it than you are. He knows better than we do. Don't try to get into a contest with God about knowing or wanting. He's better at both. But here's the, the, the verse that changes your life in verse 33. It really will change your life. Please don't say, well, this is for Israel and I can't do this. Please there's an application here for you that's vital to you understanding your life. And it's throughout the entire New Testament. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Paul does not contradict this. Paul lives this out. He carries this out as the paradigm to the Gentiles. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not second. Not if I have any time left over. Not well. I, I, I fed my family. I have an extra hour. I'll go after the kingdom some. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the promise, that's a command, the promise, all these things will be added to you. Watch your promises in scripture. Promises usually follow commands. There's cause and effect. Do this that I'm asking and this will happen. Oh, well, that's how God dealt with Israel. That's the Old Testament. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's not just Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's also Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's throughout the scriptures that God has expectations. He tells you what they are. And he says, this is what happens when you walk on this path. And no, you're not under the Mosaic law. 
No, we're not national Israel. We're the body of Christ composed of Jew and Gentile together who are actually believers and dwell by the Spirit of God. Here's the command. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Will y'all please think through how you relate to the kingdom? If I'm right, that we're not in the kingdom because Jesus is not physically on earth ruling on David's throne as prophesied. If we haven't seen Isaiah 2 or Isaiah 4 or Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 11, if we haven't seen the things described of the kingdom, and we haven't, and we're not supposed to contradict what God said through the prophets with what he said later, we don't believe in abrogation. We believe the New Testament grows out of the Old Testament. If there is a real physical, political coming kingdom, and it's miraculous, and it's it removes the curse of the earth, as we just read in Romans 8. If that's true, and we're not in it, then how do you and I relate to the kingdom? How do we relate to it? Well, just like the recipients of Matthew, when Jesus spoke, they were looking for it to come, and he was saying, receive it. Just like the readers of Matthew, after Jesus was resurrected and ascended and gone, the readers, the first readers of this are, are able also to say the kingdom's coming. I'm looking for it still to come. And so how do you and I relate to the coming kingdom? We relate to the kingdom because the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is going to rule with him over his creation. We're marked out to rule in the coming kingdom. Those who are believers in this age are called the body of Christ. They're also called the bride of Christ, and we will rule with our Savior. And so so how does that relate to the kingdom now? Those who become believers... And disciple up are part of this project of making disciples who will take up this yoke and rule with Christ in his kingdom. Our phase is a recruitment for this class called the church, which will rule with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom. That's the mission. Did you hear me say it's not building uh, social programs? That is not our mission. I love the social programs, but they're not the gospel. If you do a social program and no gospel, that is not kingdom work. I'm sorry, it's not. If you share the gospel with someone and you feed them, that is definitely part of that effort of making disciples. And that's what we're trying to say. There is no sense in which there's any action we're going to take that's going to stop the civilization from collapsing into globalism and, 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 and worship of the Antichrist. You're not going to build structures that are going to stop that from happening. That's what's going to happen. So what's our role? It's not corporate in terms of, of structures. It's not soci- um, sociological structures. It's individual disciples. It's making disciples of people that become believers and choose to walk worthy of our calling. The way you relate to this command and promise is you make sure that the discipleship mission Jesus gave the church in Matthew chapter 28 is your mission. You make sure you're growing spiritually so you can do adult work. You make sure that what you do is to God's glory only and never for your own. You do what the New Testament teaches us. Therefore, do not worry for tomorrow. I don't need to be worried about tomorrow. I'm looking at what's coming in the big tomorrow. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry for the things, literally the things of itself, and then the King James is pretty good, actually. Sufficient for each day is its own evil. The trouble that you've got coming tomorrow, you'll handle that tomorrow. I can't eat lunch for, t- I can't eat tomorrow's lunch today. I can eat today's lunch eventually. I mean, eventually you get, you get to lunch. But see, that, that's the idea. You can't worry 
about the things that you want to worry about. You can only deal today and take it a bite at a time. I appreciate your attention. I know I've gone long here. But I just want you to have a sense as you go into the new year of what to really anticipate. Please don't put your faith in the election process. Participate in the election process, but don't put your faith there. Please don't divide with people over political personalities. Please don't. Don't bring that to the table. Divide with people over Jesus. I mean, present Jesus, and if that causes division, lament. But please don't cloud the mission with these other things that are part of our details, part of our function, and and lose sight of what we're really doing. Let's be on mission. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, the challenge of this life that we've read today, and for the, the clear gospel that Jesus presented. When he went to the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, and demonstrated your love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, offering us eternal life through his righteous life and death alone, and that the righteousness we bring is useless, that the only righteousness you're interested in is that which you give us when we first trust in Jesus as our Savior. Father, we thank you for the life of works we've read about today, a lifetime of storage, of storing treasures up in heaven by the works that are pleasing to you. Father, the, 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 the church oriented on your grace is afraid of the word work because we don't want to cloud the issue of the gospel that it's only the work of Jesus. But having been saved by grace, Father, we know that you've provided grace works for us to walk in and that you have ultimately a glorious destiny for us. Father, give us a lift in our step as we think about the glories that are to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.